Hi, it's Nathan. Jake is on vacation this week, so to keep things fresh while he's gone, I am going to load an episode of my other podcast, Artificially Intelligent. I do feel the need to warn you up front, this episode might be disturbing to some of you. In it, my friend Barrett and I interview a woman who is violated in the worst way a woman can be violated. She tells her story from abduction to forgiving her attacker 20 years later. You might find it compelling, you will find it upsetting, but hopefully the good outweighs the bad. Next week, Jake and I will be back at it, making fun of everything under the sun. So if you want to hold out until then, I understand. Either way, thanks for listening. All right, hello. Welcome to the Artificially Intelligent Podcast, where me, Nathan Timmel, a white, hunky American crackgrass comedian in Iowa, speaks with his bestest bud, a black African-American person of color in Philadelphia, a musician. I'm a comedian. He's a musician. And today we have a guest, Sherry Maruz. Did I say it correctly? You did. I did. I practiced it several times because how is it spelled? M-R-U-Z or Yes, M-R-U-Z. Yeah, so... That's what you get when you marry a Polish boy from Minnesota. You get a funny last name. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I guess, yeah, I just, I think of uh, the Midwest, I think of uh, Wisconsin and Germany, so I, I don't think of the, the Polacks, so, all right, well, there you go. Um, so, but Minnesota, that's not you. We originally, the reason you're here, part of it is... Um, we 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 went to the same high school in the same small town in Wisconsin, a little yes. town called Oconomowoc. That's right. Wow, um, that is our connection. Did you guys now, actually know each other back then, or no? I knew I knew of Nathan, but oh, um, I, I don't know that we were connected at all. Right, he was the one who was always getting marched out of the school in handcuffs. That's how you knew. <laughs> Not I don't handcuffs. That. I I don't recall that. I'm sorry, sorry, I don't recall it. <laughs> Yeah, not handcuffs, but I, I, I had a, let's say a reputation or, I mean, because we had, we talked to Mike Dalton about what it's like to grow up in a small Wisconsin town and be different, or actually he was the same then, how he, how he transformed himself from that small mountain, small town mentality to who he, the man he is today. And uh, he said, yeah, we didn't run the same circles, but I was aware of you. I, I, I'd see you coming. I'd head the other way because man, that Timmel's an asshole. Uh, that was, those were his words. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, I just don't remember that. I know that uh, our town was small enough. Our high school was small enough that uh, before I aged, uh, my memory was pretty good back in the day. You could have covered the names in the yearbook and I could have gone through and named everybody. Uh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> so I was aware of who people definitely were. I would know someone if you would have said your name. Um, but the truth is, is that as I've gotten older, I don't recall everybody. There are times where someone will say, you know, they'll mention somebody and they'll say, well, we were, you were at the party or, you know, you were at this event and we were all there. And I don't, I don't necessarily remember all those details anymore, but we do come from a great town. I think I love Oconomowoc and I love all those memories, but um, yeah, Minnesota, I met my husband in lacrosse. So a lot of students in lacrosse Wisconsin. Uh, we're from Minnesota. Okay. I was going to say, cause that's all, but it's funny. Um, I, I, I want to autocorrect you on something. Um, mm-hmm. our grad, my graduating class was 400 plus people. And 
I don't remember that being small at all because <laughs> I, I've seen graduating classes of 20, 30 or less than I'm 100. So I, I thought sure. a graduating class of 400 was was not too bad for a small town. Yeah, not too bad. I think I've gotten um, so used to what we have here in Florida, which is, I would say, uh, just shy of insanity. When my son graduated high school in 2019, there were like 800, almost 900 kids in his graduating class. It's just unbelievable. The high schools here are like college campuses. They're huge. They're just, and I think we have four or five high schools in our town. It's amazing how (laughs) different it is. You also have different memories than I do or different perceptions, which is neat because I have not gone back to Oconomowoc. I've been, the closest I've been is I went to, and this won't mean anything to anyone, but uh, there used to be a resort there called Olympia that was on the outskirts of town. Now is, well, it's gone, but it was fully embedded because the town grew over it. And I got there to perform comedy. I was hired and, and I got there and I'm like, you know, I could drive five more minutes and go look at the town, but Nah, fuck that place because, <laughs> because I don't have, I don't want to say unhappy memories, but I came from the inner city of Milwaukee. And so all of my friends were black. And when I showed up in Oconomowoc, everyone was extremely racist and nobody except for Josh Johnson was black. And right, right. That yeah. literally the one black kid, but and so everybody was racist, the occasional like, foreign exchange student. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but so I just remember gonna... having this thought: is uh, why is everybody hate black people when there are no black people around? I, I was very confused as a child, and then it took me as an adult to grow up and figure out media manipulation and what the news presented as good and bad, and and right. how. Right. Even Hollywood movies are, do you feel lucky? I mean, you look at sudden impact with Clint Eastwood and he walks into that cafe of, of, of all black thugs. You're like, wow, this would not get made today. Um, mm-hmm. But either way. So I, I, I just remember it being very small town, small mind, conservative, racist, uh, hip, hypocritical where it was like you know we love jesus you know just not in the biblical way just in the way that allows us to feel good about our judgments so it's interesting that you have happy memories is it because did you grow up there or did you move there like i did so i moved there i moved there when i was 10 um i lived in ohio and then my parents got divorced my mom got remarried we moved to oconomowoc so not all of my memories are happy (laughs) um but but most of them are i had wonderful friendships there and i had some wonderful teachers things at home were not fantastic. Um, certainly not not the worst case scenario, but um, I was happier at school than I was at home. And I had really good friendships. I also had a, you know, had a steady boyfriend in high school, uh, which was fun. I had a great, healthy, you know, what's relationship that like? for that time. <laughs> That's, what did you say? I said, what's that like? <laughs> it was great, actually. It was a lot of fun. And, and he was a lot of fun. And we, we had a for young when I recognize the name I don't remember anybody um his name was Brad Hall and he was in my he was in the same grade as me we actually went to elementary school junior high high school together didn't get ended up on Saturday Night Live 
Yeah, you know, I, I saw that guy recently on, I saw something about him recently, and I totally forgot that, that there was somebody famous with that same name, but I, from, I guess I what I mean still might that, be, but was married to Julia Louis-Dreyfus after Saturday oh, okay. Night Live, but I didn't know, not the same, definitely not the same guy, <laughs> but we had, you know, my friends, my boyfriend, we did a lot of fun, normal teenager stuff, so I have good memories, very good memories, and I think that I I left Wisconsin in 1992, having gone to college, um, and left there. And I have a lot of, and I think this is also just kind of part of aging. I have a lot of nostalgia, and I think with Facebook and the internet, something I you know we never saw coming when we were kids, or at least I didn't. Have having these tools now to stay connected online has been really wonderful for me to stay connected with the people that I went to school with, making new connections. Um, but I do like to go home. I started going home um, a couple of years ago and spending about a week in that area and uh, sort of retracing steps and revisiting places. And it, I really enjoy it. Um, but I've talked to several people who never go home. <laughs> um, and then you talk to people who've lived there their entire lives. They never left. Yeah. So that's always interesting to me too. I, I don't know. I, I'm glad that I've had the opportunity to be in different places, you know, live in different places and move around a little bit. Um, but I do like to go back there. Um, I, I think it's really pretty. And I just like to connect with with people from uh, from childhood. Makes me feel good. It's <laughs> funny. You uh, said you use Facebook uh, to connect. And and I, I use Facebook. I, I remember full well going to a, a high school reunion, the first one. And I'm like, well, this is kind of neat. Not too bad seeing these people after all these years. And now Facebook makes it like, I, will, I don't need to go to another one. Like, I... <laughs> yeah. I, it's funny because I get along with people because I I don't care. Like I, I say I, I I use these fake terms like, oh, I really hate Trumpers, but I know Trumpers and I like them and we get along. Mm -hmm. It's just I have this visceral reaction when I see them posting something completely fucking idiotic online. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. And then I see them in person and I'm like, oh, I actually like you. You're a decent person. Oh, I know. And yeah. so. <laughs> Um, so we use Facebook differently. I use it as, as a reason not to stay in touch. Like, okay, that's why I don't want to talk to you, even though I like talking to them. So how would, let, let's start there. Do you feel what you just said? I've lived a lot of places too. And what I find, and this was proven in surveys and studies that people with less life experience uh, tend to have a more narrow point of view when it comes to politics and religion as they're as they didn't interact with more people and become expanded as human beings so they tend to vote in a tendency that uh, supports a narrow view of life and or can hurt them economically or socially do you do you feel are you what do you remember of what i explained racism conservative beliefs mm -hmm. do you what what are your politics and did moving a lot shape them do you feel you fit in more with the small town friends you have, or did you go from there? Like I'm just word okay. salading, but hopefully okay. you can what I mean. Uh, well, uh, so I've, I've definitely never been a conservative. Um, I've, I've always been a liberal um, always and uh, pretty left, you know, um, 
I think that, you know, having grown up in Oconomowoc, I have to say as a child, I, I, I wasn't paying attention um, to other people's politics, wasn't thinking that way. I was your typical teenage girl who was just really into, you know, Duran Duran and into my boyfriend and and into spending time with the girls. I, I don't remember my parents even talking about politics. I know who they voted for. Um, I, I was aware of who they voted for just kind of perfectly, but it was never really discussed. Um, there was definitely not the division. I think that there is now, um, if there was, I, I definitely wasn't aware of it. Same thing with friends, you know, I, I guess, um, until, until Trump was in office, I kind of thought that everybody I knew thought the same way that I did. I know how dumb that sounds, but I really just knowing what people's backgrounds were and things. I thought everybody was quite liberal minded like I was. I was very surprised to find out how many people are conservative um, and, and, and selectively conservative. Um, because Can you define I, that? What you mean by selectively conservative? I mean, they're, they're selectively conservative and that there's some things that they're definitely liberal minded about, but they will vote. They'll definitely vote on the conservative side. You know, take, for example, um, a hotbed issue right now, abortion. Um, I know people who are conservative voters uh, that are going to continue voting um, conservatively, even though I know they're uh, not against abortion or gay marriage. Um, and and I that's where I really call into question where people's um, true beliefs and and where their ethics are because then I feel like all bets are off if you're going to vote um, on such for people that are going to affect such change in such a negative way for such huge groups of people um, then I really have I really question. Uh, whether or not I really can be friends with some some people, you know, I have lots of friends that that I have found out where they stand because of things that they post on Facebook, and I'm sure that's they they also know where I come from because of what I've posted on Facebook. We've been able to stay friends, and when I've gotten together, like you were just talking about, you get together, like I really do like you. But there are some people that um, have waved, in my opinion, waved such a freak flag. Um, it's a it's a true warning that I'm like that is definitely someone I really don't want to spend time with. I don't want to be around that person, so I don't make any effort to see them. And I have unfriended people online because I just don't want their toxicity in my life. And, you know, there, um, I, I definitely don't want to be like throwing names around on here, but there is one person that I know you and I both know on uh, Facebook that, um, flat earther and the whole thing, it's just, it's so insane. And he's so intense, um, that I just removed him a couple of years ago because, um, his, his thought processes are so insane to me, but he actually seems mentally unstable. And I just don't want, I don't want that in my life. So what's funny is I went to dinner with, uh, this, this goes back a handful of years. Um, several people on the conservative side of things from our town, we were seeing, uh, different, different seats, but we were all going to the same concert. And so we realized it and said, well, we haven't seen each other since the reunion. Let's meet for dinner. And then we'll all 
And uh, he came up and even the people on the conservative side were like, yeah, no, he's fucking Looney Tunes. We, <laughs> yeah, that's not conservative. <laughs> it's, it's like a, he's in a class by himself. It's really to anybody uh, watching slash listening. My favorite part about this person is whenever he goes off on one of his rants, 90 percent of the time I ignore him. But 10 percent of the time I just leave a post saying, oh, yeah, I guess that's what someone that has been arrested multiple times, including for domestic abuse, would think. And, and he just goes off because he has this mm -hmm. huge arrest record, including for domestic abuse. And yeah. you know, <laughs> he, he calls me a loser and a failure. And I'm like, I might be a loser, but I don't have an arrest record for domestic I... abuse. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's really a strange situation. Let me, let me ask you both a question, because maybe you guys know the answer to this. Why do you think people would vote not counter to their own interests, but counter to their own beliefs? Like, what is it that ties the conservative vote together, even when people disagree on such they just they seem to disagree on major issues that don't have an effect on their lives right like if you don't have any gay people in your family and in your friend group but you believe gay marriage is okay you could theoretically still vote against it because it doesn't affect you right mm -hmm. so what is it that you think that the conservative party is offering them that makes it convenient for them to vote for them even though they disagree on all these other topics I have a couple ideas and uh, we're not going to name names because uh, I'll, I'll just use the name Fred because I can't think of anybody named Fred, but oh, I have a really good high school friend Karen's. named Fred. Karen's. What's that? Fred's. You're going to alienate every Karen and every Fred. <laughs> um, but continue. Well, to be fair, fuck Fred's. They have it coming. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, uh, my, my good friend Fred, <laughs> it, 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 uh, uh, he's dumb. Uh, let's just put it that way. He's dumb. I love him. God bless him. He's dumb. I've when we've spoken in person and he doesn't have Google in front of him, I've cornered him multiple times where we'll just have a casual conversation. I'll say, hey, why did uh, you think of this? Like, well, this I'm like, OK, but this is the truth. Like, oh, I don't know, man. I just vote whatever. And then it's just done because he realizes he doesn't have an out. And one day we were talking and, and chatting and um, I brought up the whole Ukraine phone call with Trump where he in everyone with an IQ above 80s eyeballs, I don't know what the word is, uh, blackmailed them, held them hostage, said, you don't get, you know, the, the quid pro quo. And that was the big thing. You do this for me. I do this for you, which is not how government works. That's how the mafia works. Um, and he <laughs> legit said, I don't know, man, I just don't trust the Democrats the way they were trying to pin all that bullshit on Trump for his Ukraine phone call. And I'm like, you mean the legit phone call that was recorded and turned in by a highly decorated military officer and who everyone says that's not, he's like, yeah, Democrats tried to impeach him for that, man. I just don't trust him. They're, they're just in it for power. So they look at everything the Republican Party did under Trump and it's just and then the instant the Democrats try and I don't want to say fight back, it's it's literally oh, Democrats are so corrupt and it's just it's just a mindset. And I mm -hmm. do not know how you break it other than move different places experience other cultures meet different people expand your horizons these people and this is something i said was studied most trump voters never moved beyond a 50 mile radius of where they were born or grew up was was the survey that was shown and so when you live in isolation you have isolated thoughts you don't you don't glean information or outside experiences and so you just don't care you just you, yeah. you think what you think you believe what you believe and you turn on your news which is an echo chamber and everybody you talk to says the same thing so mm -hmm. 
so it's like Sherry said, in a way, she said she had no idea people felt differently from her, not because she was ignorant, just because it didn't come up. Yeah. Now it comes up all the time and all the time, you know, it's, there's just, there's, there's so much, it seems like we debate every single thing now. I mean, people are at war over Disney over a yeah. mouse. I mean, you can <laughs> politicize and divide over anything these days. You know, you used, people used to joke, you know, that one person could say the sky is blue and somebody else is going to say, no, it's not. But nowadays that's true. People will argue over anything. I don't, I don't like the divisiveness at all. I, I guess, you know, it sounds really cliche and trite, but just you do you, you know, I'll do me. I, I, um, I saw a video this week of a woman that was um, going on about um, abortion and, uh, and the religious um, infiltration into the government. And there's just no separation of church and state anymore. And, you know, she just kept going on and she just kept saying, you know, I don't care. I don't care. And I related so much because that's exactly how I feel. I don't care at all about anyone's conservative beliefs or their, um, their religion. I'll, I'll, I'll fight for them to have those rights themselves. They can think and say whatever they want. They have that freedom of speech. They can believe anything they want to believe, but they don't have any right whatsoever to project that on me. They, they yeah. don't. I don't have to believe what you believe. I don't have to do what you want me to do. Um, I will follow law, um, but this whole issue with, um, uh, you know, with abortion, I, I, I if you want to have an abortion, have an abortion. If you don't want to have an abortion, don't have one. If you want to take birth control, take birth control. I am not going to tell anybody what to do with their body, including um, whether or not they want to terminate the body, you know, the, the life that's growing inside of them. That is their right to do that. If there are consequences to that, um, then they, they'll be the ones to face the music. They get to make that choice for themselves. Um, I think a lot of the uh, thought process with people who vote conservative it's very they're very boxed in and it's it's almost like a it's a fear thing um if if i give a little bit then things are going to change around me i know people who are a hundred percent against um gay marriage a hundred percent against anything transgender it's so foreign to them and they're so caught up in their own religious beliefs they they just don't want to see it they don't think that this should be going on and i just always ask myself how does it affect them? Like, just mind your own damn business. It doesn't have anything to do with your daily life, getting up, making your breakfast, brushing your teeth, going to work, coming home, being with your family. How does Bob and Bill across the street, how does that affect your life? It doesn't have anything to do with you or, you know, anyone that was transgender and or anything, how does it affect you? It doesn't just stay out of it. You know, you can close your eyes to it. If you don't want to see it, just ignore it, I guess, but you don't have to participate in other people's choices. Just leave people alone. I, all of this really comes down to control and, and power. That's what I think it is, is people don't uh, want to give up their, their control and power. And 
listen, I'm married to a white man, <laughs> love my husband. So this isn't a knock on all white men, but this is a white male issue. The power and control issues in the country are about white males losing power. You know, they see that happening. And that's why um, I think that they're fearful of, of having uh, their status or their position, their power diminished. Um, and so that's why we have men making decisions for women. It's, it's really crazy. It's really crazy to me. I don't think it's going to stop. At, I don't think it's going to stop at abortion and birth control. I think it's going to go further. I think we'll see interference with, um, with gay marriage. I think that'll be the next thing that comes. Well, I the thing I, I think a lot of it also has to do, I mean, with fear, but also, as we've said, an inability to expand your horizons, it comes down to the, the argument I hear a lot is protect the kids. And I love it when I see someone articulate something in a way that was in my brain, but I could never pour out of my mouth. And I saw a TikTok yesterday where it was a stitch where one person said something and then another person jumped in with the response. And the first video was this lady like, you're telling me we have to have conversations with my 10 year old kid about bathrooms and transgender. How are we going to do that? And then this other mom piped in there. Hey, uh, sweetie, you know, that bathroom in our house that all four of us use. Yeah. The, the, the bathroom and the targets like that too. Everybody uses it. Mm -hmm. That seemed pretty fucking easy. <laughs> and it was just, it's it like, is. <laughs> like, there you go. Something that's just I said is that it's actually compared it to a home bathroom where, yeah, we don't have mommy's <laughs> bathroom and daddy's bathroom and my daughter's bath. It's like everybody just goes to the bathroom and you lock the door and no one well, cares. It's, it really is that simple. I mean, even in a sh even when you go into a, a public bathroom that has shared stalls, who cares? <laughs> I've Wait, been in bathrooms stalls? in two, Europe. Two people pooping in the same stall. That that one I'm against. That sounds very <laughs> that military. One. We have to draw that's the line the somewhere. Reason <laughs> but I, I've been in one Europe. One of the reasons, main reason I did not join the military is I saw Full Metal Jacket and those <laughs> row of toilet paper, toilet, those row of toilets all lined up. I'm like, you're telling me I'm going to be taking a shit with guys brushing their teeth and shit? Nope, I am out. Yeah. That public pooping was one reason I did not join the military. Mm -hmm. Shared stalls, no thanks. That's right. Transgender people with the bathroom, straight. Yep, but shared shared stalls, nope. Yeah. I know you meant something else, but that's what jumped out at me. <laughs> I've actually been in um, a, a couple of restrooms in Europe where men and women did go to the bathroom together. It was Probably like a, a mixed bath. It was just a, a, a public bathroom and you went in and there could be a man in the stall next to you. There were no urinals, you know, like where they go right, right there, but there were stalls and there were men and women. I mean, I don't know. I just don't, I just don't see that it's really that big of a deal. You know, like I, I said, Allie McBeal is groundbreaking. We should all, uh, <laughs> yeah. all hail Calista Flockhart. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's use this to transition to something more personal and tragic. What Barrett and I talk about, and as we talk about some of these people, as we label them, these people, uh -huh. um, <laughs> Barrett and I talk about irredeemability mm -hmm. often, and we can never figure okay. it out because we both sides tend to look at the other as irredeemable. And I don't know that it was always this way where we cross our arms and say, well, this person doesn't think like I do. So fuck them. They're not as good as me. Mm -hmm. And everybody collectively needs to get over this. And you had a great tragedy in your life where I would say someone in my mind would be irredeemable. Fuck mm -hmm. that person. And I know we're shifting off politics, but it's the idea of 
just you found forgiveness mm. is uh, something you're comfortable with talking about now as a sort of the reason Dalton hooked us up, I believe. Sure, sure. Yeah. What do you want to know? <laughs> I mean, I guess in your words, what you're comfortable talking about and, and mm -hmm. yeah, how you overcame, I guess, to begin, mm -hmm. my question would be, do you label yourself? And if so, would you call yourself a survivor or a victim? Because in today's politically correct mm -hmm. word, calling someone the wrong thing makes me an aggressor. And I never know what the right thing is. Because okay. I can yeah, see so, both. I can see both sides of things where you be yeah. you are a victim that becomes a survivor. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely both. I would say that it, it it's okay to be both. Um, so yeah, I I would say that I was a victim of sexual assault. I was kidnapped in 1991 uh, when I was going to school in Lacrosse. I was walking home from work. Uh, in the middle of the night and um, I was kidnapped and I was uh, held hostage for several hours and I was raped repeatedly. And uh, I, at one point thought I was, I thought, I, I thought the person who took me was going to um, take me somewhere to kill me uh, because he had taken me to his home and then he put me back in the car and I was sure that he was going to take me somewhere and kill me. He had told me several times that he was going to do that. Um, I, th through the ordeal, I stayed very calm and I had helped to keep him calm. And so those threats became less and less, but then when he, it ramped kind of up again, when he put me in the car, so I was sure he was going to kill me, but he ended up driving around and taking me back to his house. And then all the rape stuff happened again. And so finally, hours later, um, I was released. I convinced him that I would not tell anyone what happened and that I was just ashamed of what happened and embarrassed and humiliated. And I would just never tell anyone. So he didn't have anything to worry about. Plus he thought I didn't see anything because he pulled my coat up over my head. Anyhow, he did, he trusted that I wasn't going to tell anybody and he let me go. And then I immediately went to the police. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I lied. Good um, on you. <laughs> yeah. So um, my my husband was my boyfriend at the time. He came and got me. We went to the hospital. The police came and I went through all of that. Long story short, um, he was caught and he was sentenced to 65 years in prison. Um, and that's a whole nother topic about, um, I'd love to talk sometime about sentencing and how, how people, um, serve and all of that. So well, we can anyhow, talk about it now um, I'll just jump in and say, this is where I am. You we're going to get to forgiveness. These are, I am absolutely pro death penalty and stories uh -huh. like this are why, I mean, I okay. just, this is where I don't find forgiveness where it's like, Oh, you're absolutely guilty. Fuck you. Get off my planet. Yes. Well, I was in that space. I was definitely in that space. Um, you know, 30 years ago I was, um, when, when this person was caught, I'll just say his name is, his name is David Roberts. Um, when, when David was caught, um, I wanted, I want at that point, it was no longer scared. I felt very empowered so that's going back to your question. I was a victim of sexual assault, but I also survived. And so um, I make, I have no shame in tooting my own horn about this because 
I am proud of what I was able to do. I, I, I fought a lot in over the years at, at, with guilt and shame of not physically fighting back when this happened. Um, I know you don't, don't remember me from high school, but I can tell you that from a young age, all the way up through high school and in college, I was definitely a person who did fight authority. I wasn't a troubled person. I wasn't in trouble, but I definitely questioned authority. And that started in the home. Um, I um, fought going to church. I ended up and not going to church because um, from a very young age, I, I questioned everything and that wasn't appreciated. Um, I did have um, some run-ins with a couple of teachers, you know, so me having conflict or addressing conflict was never a problem for me. Um, I had, unfortunately, you know, I had run-ins with a couple people in high school and I never cowered. I never, I didn't go looking for conflict, but I definitely didn't, didn't run away from it. I would fight back if I thought something was unfair, especially for people who were, um, who needed someone to stand up for them. People with developmental disabilities. I mean, that was big back when we were in high school, people picked on them terribly. And um, I stood up you know, uh, against that many, many times. Um, so fighting back was never an issue for me. And then this happens to me. And I'm telling you, I, I had the hardest time grappling with the fact that I did not physically fight back. I was taken by such surprise um, when this happened, I did not, I didn't, I didn't see the guy, you know, I didn't know he was going to just all of a sudden appear in front of me and he did. Um, so I had a really hard time, but when I, uh, reflect on what happened, I did fight back, but I fought with my brain, you know, the whole time that I was being, um, assaulted, I, I kind of, uh, and it's hard to explain because things happen so fast in your brain. It can be milliseconds that you're having thoughts. I mean, I'm laying there and this horrible thing is happening to me. And I'm thinking about all the people in my life. I'm thinking about my parents and my siblings, and I'm thinking about my boyfriend and how he, I'm going to die. This is how I'm going to go out. Um, and when I'm found, it's going to kill them. Like I'll be dead, but it's going to literally kill my parents. My boyfriend will never forgive himself, you know, for not coming to pick me up that night. Um, they, that's what's going through my head. I'm thinking there's got to be a way I can get through this. And, um, and, and funny enough, I used to watch Unsolved Mysteries and there had been this program one night um, on Unsolved Mysteries about a woman who had been attacked, raped, kept in a van. And she kept the guy calm. He was very violent and she calmed him down and he fell asleep. And that's how she got out of the van. And that was playing in my head too, when this was all happening, like there's gotta be a way I can get him to calm down. And so I just talked to him. I started talking to him and calmed him down and he untied me. And so while I was being raped, I started pulling hair out of my head and I had really long hair and I took strands of my hair and put them under the pillow and I dropped them behind the nightstand. And then I asked to go to the bathroom. And Sorry, me... interrupt. Are you the smartest fucking person <laughs> on the planet? My well, God. Well, I don't know. The Thank you. Foresight. I don't know that I am. But it is weird what happens when you're in this extremely stressful situation. I It was twofold. I thought, well, if I get out of this, there's got to be evidence left. But if I don't get out of this, 
that could be equally important. Like, I don't know if they'll ever catch him, but if they catch him, then someone will know that I was here. So I'm going to leave evidence that I was here. I went to the bathroom. I pulled pubic hair out, put it behind the toilet seat. I, um, he got me water. I asked him for water. He got me a glass of water. I put my fingerprints on the glass. I'm thinking all of this is just going really fast. And I'm just thinking, thinking, thinking. I, I remember pulling carpet strands out and, and trying to put them in my pocket, which didn't work. Um, but just all these things and taking in every little thing I could um, visually. Um, so anyhow, he got caught. You know, I, I told the police everything. They, they actually were able to find the house. That was a big process, but they found the house. He got nailed. Um, we went to court. Um, I, Sorry to interrupt. Um, mm-hmm. Between the caught and court, was he ever out on bail or did they say, all right, no. this guy. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. No, he never, they, they arrested him. It would have been like the next night. I think I went to the hospital around like seven in the morning. And I want to say they caught him around maybe, I don't know, like 11 or 12 that night. It was very late at night. I, we had, I had driven around. This was terrible. I was not able to go home and take a shower or brush my teeth or anything. They, they immediately took me from the hospital after I had my exam and gave all my statements to the police. The police took me in a car and drove me around La Crosse trying to find this house. I could see out of my jacket, he pulled my jacket up over my head and zipped it up. And um, I could see out of a little spot like this big. So he didn't think I could see anything and it was dark. So all I saw was, um, a little bit of the house and a vehicle parked in the driveway, um, a a Ford truck. And then I know we went up a couple of cement steps and the door was white. And it was one of those metal doors that has like scalloping around the screen and there's a black handle and there was a snow shovel next to it. So that's what I told the police. And so they had law enforcement from all over Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, everybody, they called in all kinds of help and people were scouring lacrosse looking for this. So they're taking me who has been through this incredible ordeal and I'm exhausted and upset and I want to shower and I want to wash my mouth out with bleach. And they have me driving around with them going to look at houses and we would get to houses and they wouldn't look anything like what I described. They'd be brown. That was it. Anyhow, I was fried after getting pulled in a million different directions. Um, I finally uh, really lost it in the car. Um, I, I was screaming on the CB radio that the house wasn't baby shit brown. You know, it wasn't light brown. It was the color of a Nestle toll, toll house morsel. That's what I said on the thing. Stop calling me to places that aren't the right. Anyhow, the police were like, she's had enough. Let's take her home. So I went home. I finally showered. I did wash my mouth out with Clorox. Um, uh, my my boyfriend's probably immunized you against COVID all these years. That's later. right. So I've never had COVID. You've got it. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so my my um, husband, my boyfriend at the time, now my husband, he he took me to his parents' house who lived in La Crosse. And I was exhausted. You know, I mean, I was, I don't even know how to describe how I felt. I was so like, I couldn't believe that I survived what I survived, but then I kind of felt like I just 
kind of didn't want to be around. I, I wanted to go to sleep and wake up in 20 years. <laughs> I wanted to just, I couldn't believe what I had still had coming and whether they were going to catch him or not was that was in my head, you know? So eventually that night, my mother-in-law gave me a sleeping pill and I had never taken a sleeping pill before. And that knocked my ass out. That's what I wanted. I just wanted to disconnect and go to sleep. So I went to sleep. And then the next thing I know, my boyfriend is um, waking me up to tell me that the, the DA is on the phone and the police, they want me to come into town, back into town because they think that they have found the house. And I, I felt like I, I thought I was, had been sleeping for hours and hours and hours. And I said, where, where, you know, where am I? I was so discombobulated. What, how long have I been asleep? And my boyfriend said only 45 minutes. It was horrifying that I took this pill and then I had to go. I said, I swear I'll kill somebody. If I get down there and they take me to another house that isn't the house, I'm going to kill someone. But we went down, I met the DA and then I met with um, a detective and he said, and he, I had been with him earlier in the day. And he said, Sherry, we wouldn't do this to you if we weren't hundred percent sure. We are sure that we found it. And he said, the, the crazy thing is, is um, when we were in the car earlier today, the last time that we got pulled away to go look at another house, if we had just stayed where we were, this house is on the next block over. So oh. you, yeah, I know we were that close. It, it was crazy that I, there was something instinctual. I, I don't know how to explain this. I know it sounds a little nutty, but I knew that I was on the South side of lacrosse and I never saw anything because the assault started in the car. And I, I never saw where we went, but I just knew that's where we were. And that's where I wanted them to focus. And that is where the house was. So he, he took me and he said, we're going to drive down a couple of streets. I can't tell you where it's at. You have to, that's leading a witness. You have to point it out yourself. So it's night now. And that's when I was assaulted was at night. So everything looked like it did the night before. Um, and we drove around and we went down this one street and I saw the house and there was the dark brown house and there was the truck in the parking lot and um, the vehicle that I had been in, which I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew it was maroon. There it was. There was the snow shovel. There was the door. I mean, it was definitely it. And I pointed it out and then he went and dropped me off um, to some other police and, and then they took me home. And they went and arrested him. So it wasn't long. It didn't take long for them to find him. They only found him because of me. I mean, it's because of what I was able to tell them that they found him. And I'm very proud of that. I'm glad I took him off the street. But at that time, I was extremely angry. Um, and I was... I wanted him to go to jail forever. Really what I wanted was for them to maybe just leave me alone in the room with him for a while. Cause I wasn't scared anymore. And I felt like I wanted to physically harm him or let my dad go in the room with him <laughs> or my boyfriend go in the room with him. Somebody just tear the shit out of this guy. That's what I wanted. I was extremely angry at that time. Um, went to court. We had to do a preliminary hearing. They told me I would be on the stand for 20 to 30 minutes. I was on the stand for four and a half hours. It went way beyond the scope of a normal um, preliminary hearing. I really don't know why. 
Um, I'm not sure, but in the end, that was a good thing because it really proved to the defense that I was a strong witness. Like there was no gray area here. This was a black and white situation. Um, I was kidnapped and I was kept hostage and I was raped. End of story. There was no, you know, she did this or whatever. It was, there was none of that. The police were great. They did great police work. Um, The attorneys did an unusual thing. When it came time to charge him, they charged him, one, as a repeat offender. He had never done anything like this before, um, but he had uh, been kicked out of the army for selling or buying drugs. So I was surprised, but that could be used against him. Because I started an eye roll when you said repeat offender. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ. And then when you follow up with this is the first, I mean. Right. That's well, it was shocking to me, too, because that's exactly what I thought is that he had done this before. But that's not it. They used this other charge against him. That was one thing they did. And the other thing they did is they charged him with multiple counts of sexual assault because it started in the car and then it was in the living room, then it was in the bedroom, then it was in the living room, then it was in the bedroom, then it was in the car. You know, it was um, so sorry to be so graphic, but they basically said, how many times do you think he entered you and came out and went in again? And I said, my God, I mean, he made me change positions. I don't know how many times in rooms and all these different things and things I never would have done. Um, it was horrifying. It was, it had to be 50 or 60 times. And so, um, they basically took that and they charged him with multiple counts of sexual assault and the judge allowed it. So he was facing 316 years in prison and he took a plea, which they came to me first. I I will say that I, I got to hand it. I know it's not always like this. In fact, it's usually not like this, but in my case, the law enforcement and the, the judicial system treated me very well. They gave me a lot of control. Um, so when the DA came to me, she said, um, you know, we can go to trial and you are a very strong witness. And this is pretty much a clear cut case, but we have, we have to give you all the scenarios and make you understand that there are times that things happen when you go to court that you weren't expecting. And that's, you know, you having to go through the whole thing again, like you did before on the stand, but we know you can handle that. But sometimes there's a technicality that we don't see coming in case you can lose a case over a technicality. So you think about it and whether or not you want to want to go, um, you know, through a trial, if you want to, we'll do that. Even though technically it's the state versus David Roberts, right? It's their case, which is such BS, but I know that's how it is. They let me be in the driver's seat and they came to me and they said, he's willing to plead guilty to crimes that add up to 70 years in prison. So I gave it some thought and I decided I apologize that, to interrupt, but I don't, how old was he at the time? I was, 21 and he was 23 so okay so yeah he wouldn't be out till he was 80 if without okay mm-hmm. sorry go continue yeah. i apologize uh, just no no that's away. okay 
Um, so I, I decided that that's what, what I would do is I, you know, or that we would do is that I would allow him to take plea and then we wouldn't have to go to trial. So in my mind, cause I'm young and I'm ignorant, I'm thinking he'll spend 70 years in prison, right? That's what I think. And then we go to sentencing and the, I, I, there's something that I didn't tell you. And that's that earlier in the night, the night that he got me, he tried to uh, kidnap a girl named Nicole and, sh and she was with friends and um, kind of got separated from her friends walking in an alley in lacrosse um, at bar time after bar. So he, he saw her and he waited for her friends to get ahead of her. And he uh, uh, tried to take her. She screamed and her friends came running back. And then two guys that heard all the commotion to, that they didn't know came running and then they chased him and he drove away. They reported that to the police. So um, she was so freaked out when she found out what happened to me that, and she really had like a, a major breakdown. She did not come to court. She just couldn't come to, she couldn't do it. Um, I, I know mutual, we knew mutual people and they said she feels bad because she knows you want her there, but she just can't handle what happened to you and, and knowing that it could have happened to her. So she didn't come. So the judge gave him, sentenced him to 65 years instead of 70 because five of the years were supposed to be for her attempted kidnapping. But okay. she didn't come and give a statement. Anyhow, Again, you made hey. me wince when, when you said 65. And then you told that story. I, I honestly <laughs> thought you were say, so the judge said 20 years. Or five, and I, I, I was about to get angry, but okay. Yeah. That, that... No, it, it really played out. I learned so much about um, the judicial system and incarceration through this process. So he gets 65 years. Then I have um, what they call a, um, a pre-sentencing um so I'm, I'm, I'm doing this out of order. There was a pre-sentence investigation where like a parole, parole officer came to my uh, apartment and talked to me and they took a statement from me. And then um, that guy told me that I should just get used to the idea that he is never going to serve 65 years. He said in Wisconsin, mandatory release is at 75%. So whatever 75% of 65 years is, he would, he would never serve a day longer than that. So I'm thinking, why, what's the sentencing for then? Like, why do you even sentence a certain amount of years if mandatory release is at 75%? And he said, what he'll probably do is serve um, at the most 25% of his sentence. <clears throat> um, 25%. And I was irate. I'm like, I don't, that's completely crazy. And basically what it, it was trying to tell me was, this is my job. This is what I do. This is what I see. This is normal. He'll probably do five to eight years and get out of prison. So in my head going forward after this, in my life, those were kind of the numbers that I was expecting. I wasn't happy about it, but that's what I thought. The years started ticking by and, and, and occasionally I would get a letter from the state that would tell me he was going to have a parole hearing. And I just filed everything away. I kept thinking they're not going to let him out. He's going to serve longer. And that was my way of just dealing with 
um, <laughs> choosing to believe that they just wouldn't let him out that early. And then, I mean, the years just rack up, right? I mean, just life just happens. And um, I kept getting these letters. And in 2018, I got a letter saying that he was going to have a hearing. And I don't know why it sat on my coffee table for several days before I, you know, took it upstairs and put it in the file. But I kept looking at it and I, and I, I thought, what, how do I feel about him if if he got out how, how do I feel about it I know nothing about him or you know what he's been doing or how he's been or anything but he's been in there and he's been in there longer than 25 <laughs> percent he's been in there longer than that like 10 years longer than that so I had a friend who worked for the um, parole uh, and probation department in La Crosse and she looked into his file for me and she said, he's never done sex offender treatment. He hasn't done the mandatory AODA, alcohol and drug treatment. Um, he hasn't done any of that. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, what a dumb shit. I guess he just wants to spend the rest of his life in prison. Okay. Right. But then that, that letter in 2018 really got me thinking. And I called like victim services in Madison, Wisconsin. And I talked to this woman and she said, you know, you, you're, you can go to a hearing at any time. You have every right to be present at a hearing, but the thought of being in the same room. Can you, can you, are you allowed to speak at a hearing? I've never been, I mean, to, to give, I've, I've seen movies because I'm dumb right. where you mm -hmm. go and, and they say like, Oh, he's a model citizen. And you say, this is what happened to me. And the parole board goes, yeah, fuck him. He's not getting out. So is there a difference between being present and actually speaking or? Yeah. So you can, you can speak. And every time I got a letter, it came with this little card that you could fill out, you know, it gives you like three lines, which is crazy. If you want to have any input, I never, I never even filled one of those out. I, I don't know what, I just wasn't really interested in being part of the process. I think that I was just trying to convince myself for many years that he just wasn't going to get out. And so if I just don't look at this, if I don't pay attention, don't get involved, then he'll just stay there. And then, you know, it started to click that I really better embrace myself for the fact that this guy is going to be out on the street again someday. They're not going to keep him forever. But curiosity had me like, why is he still in there? Because this isn't normal. Um, I'm not saying it's not right, because in my, my mind, everybody who commits a rape should get 100 years in jail. That should be their sentence. Now we'll talk about what they actually serve in a moment, but I feel like they, it should, it should never be small. It should always be this massive, um, amount of time that they are facing and what they do with that time is key. So I, I called and, and I said, you know, I don't think I can be in the same room as him. Um, I'm scared. I was scared. I was really nervous. She said, just do it over the phone and then you can hang up if you don't want to be on the call anymore. So I did that. I thought, well, that will give me a good, because my only experience, Nathan, was just what I saw on TV too, right? That's, <laughs> what do I know about a parole hearing? I've never been to anything like that. So I went on the phone and they did this, a commissioner is on the phone and the victim witness coordinator is on the phone and, and then me. And the commissioner kind of talked to me for about 10 minutes and kind of, he told me a little bit about his job and what he would be doing. 
and he prepared me. He said, I've never met Mr. Roberts before. Um, I've never, of course, talked to you before. So, you know, you need to be prepared because when I do this, when I meet with a prisoner for the first time, we go back to like childhood. I want to know their entire history. I want to know everything about that person that I can glean from them, not just reading the file. Um, and I want to know about the crime. I want them to tell me about the crime. Are you going to be able to listen to that? And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know what my expectations are today. I've never done this. He said, well, you will be muted, but you can unmute yourself at the end. If you want to talk, I will ask you if you want to say anything, but you're not allowed to converse with him. You can make a statement, but you can't talk with him. Uh, I said, okay. So they go get him and they bring him in and they do this formal, you know, it's this date, it's this time prisoner number, blah, blah, blah. Present are these people. And he says, um, Mr. Roberts, we know you're very upset. You didn't know that the victim was going to be on the phone, was going to participate in the meeting, but you understand that she has the right to be here. And, and he was, he started to speak. And it was the first time that I'd heard his voice you know, since 1991. And so I have to tell you that I went into this meeting with, I don't know what kind of expectations. Um, but I do know that I was like hanging on every word because I'm listening to this voice and it sounded so different to me. Um, when he spoke, he was definitely emotional and upset because he was so taken off guard by the fact that I was there or not there, but you know, on the, on the call. And I took some, I took some joy in that. I, I, I was happy that he was upset. I was happy that he was thrown off kilter. Um, I, I felt like, you know, it was a little punitive and I was also a little surprised by that because the one thing I knew when I, when I first inquired about being part a participant in the uh, meeting was that I wasn't sure how I felt anymore. I only knew that I wasn't really angry anymore. So the meeting proceeds and it, and it was, it was two and a half hours long. The, um, the, uh, commissioner asked him, you know, he had David go through talking about everything from the time he was a little kid all the way up through adulthood. Now I'm, I, I consider myself a pretty intelligent person and I, I think I'm a good read on character. I'm listening to this person who's incredibly eloquent when he speaks well-educated um, just really well-spoken and calm and talking about things. There was no, um, well, you know, poor me. I went through this, you know, my childhood was terrible. His childhood was terrible. I will tell you his life was really not great at all, but there are no excuses for bad behavior. There really isn't an excuse, but as I listened to him talk um, and he, he said some incredible things, I was kind of in awe of his story and having a better understanding of who he was. To me, he was always a monster. He was a rapist. He was the boogeyman. Um, most of the women I've met who have been raped were raped by someone that they knew. Um, acquaintance rape, date rape, um, assault within the family, you know, all of those things are horrible and none of this is a pissing contest over whose story is worse than anybody else's. Um, uh, in fact, I think that if you, if I was really oppressed about that, I would say that I would think that that would be even worse because 
because of the betrayal, you know, of knowing someone and trusting someone. In my situation, this was a stranger. So I could, in my mind, I could create any story I wanted to about him. And I had done that. I was sure that he was a serial rapist. No one knew, but that nobody knew. I thought he was an abusive husband to his wife. Um, I just thought he was a monster, the, the kind of person that I was always warned about, right? takes you right off the street. And that is what happened to me. So it was a lot um, easier to believe that, that he just wasn't human. <laughs> um, listening to him talk and listening to his story, it became very apparent to me that he was human. He was a human being. Um, he did an, an absolutely horrific, terrible thing. Um, but it was uh, something that was uh, spontaneous and it was something that wasn't really planned. He hadn't done this before. He wasn't abusive to his wife, all of which, you know, everything about his wife um, was definitely something I had later checked out and was proven. He, there was no history of violence in this person's life before that night. There was alcohol abuse. Um, substance abuse. He was intoxicated. None of that excuses what he did, but it helped me put pieces together. There was kind of an explanation for me of who he was and what led up to that night and what led up to those circumstances. He doesn't get a free pass. He deserved to go to prison. I am not at all disappointed that he was found, prosecuted, and that he served time. But what became really apparent to me on the phone was that I knew that I had changed over the years. I had gotten older and my anger wasn't there anymore. I wasn't angry anymore. And I don't know when that left because anger is, a, is definitely a motivator. It got me through the first few years and it got me through court. But it also is something that can really be destructive. And I was hanging on to that for a really long time. So I was glad to know that I wasn't feeling that way. On the call, he went through all of that. And then he was asked to talk about what happened that night. <clears throat> I need water. One second. Oh, um, understandable. I mean, <laughs> you were telling one hell of a goddamn story. So, so, <clears throat> so he, he talked about what happened, but all of a sudden, He's not talking very clearly. He's not talking very loudly. It's kind of mumbled. And the, the, the man on the phone, the, the commissioner said, no, David, you spoke before and we could understand you. We can't understand you now, speak up. So it wasn't like being a dick to him, but he really was keeping him at, at, on task. He said, you need to speak so that everyone, including Sherry, can hear you. So he did. And he started talking about that night and he went back to earlier in the evening when he was in a bar with his friends and, you know, he had been sober for a while and he had had this massive fight with his wife. And, um, and so he went drinking with his buddies. And then he told the story about trying to get Nikki, Nicole, and how she got away. And then how, when he saw me, that he got me and he went through the entire story. And what was so shocking was that he told the story that I had told in court and he, and many times in other situations where I had told the story and it, all the gory details 
And the only two people that really knew that story were him and I, and he didn't leave anything out. There was no um, excuses made. He just said what he did. And he was really full of shame and really full of guilt. And I could hear that. Um, I could really hear that he had obviously done a lot of work over the years that he's been in prison. He's had a lot of time to do nothing else, right? But think and um, do work. And I learned on that call that the reason why he hadn't done AODA uh, work or technically the, 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 the official training that he was supposed to do and that he hadn't done sex offender treatment was because he was always low man on the totem pole when he was in, um, when he was incarcerated. What I mean by that is he was given this big 65 year sentence, which for a rapist is unheard of. It shouldn't be, but it's unheard of. It's unprecedented really. So when you're in the system, you are put in a certain prison based on the sentence that you have, the crime that you committed, the time that you've already served. And then you got, you might move around from maximum to medium to, you know, minimum, all of that happens. But certain facilities have that training and many facilities don't. So you have to first be in one where that is offered. And he never was because the other rapists got eight to 10 years, right? So they are prioritized because they're going to get out sooner to get that training. So they're put in the facilities where it's offered. David was never put in a facility where it was offered. So he couldn't do it. So on his own, he did a lot of um, therapy and had counselors and different programs, whatever was offered where he was, he did it. Anger management, cognitive behavioral therapy. He did do AODA. It just wasn't the official program that he was supposed to have. So he definitely um, did tons of soul searching and tons of work, you know, um, uh, while he was in prison. And it was very apparent on, on that call. What happened on that call was absolutely stunning to me. I mean, I, like I said many times, I, had, I didn't know what my expectations were, but I can tell you that I never in a million years would have thought that on that call, I would have found myself having compassion for the person who raped me. Never. And if somebody would have told me that, I would have told them that they're completely crazy, that they're totally nuts. Um, if someone would have said that I would have found myself on the path to forgiveness, again, I would think that they were nuts. I mean, and many times over the years, I, I had people tell me, well, you know, you just got to find a way to forgive them. And it pissed me off. It would anger me that someone would tell me what I should be doing and what I should be feeling it was never a goal of mine ever to forgive this person. So on that call, I I, I, I was shocked. I was utterly shocked at the way that I was feeling and what I was feeling for this person. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't even reconcile what was going on. I was so surprised by it. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I wasn't being snowed. I mean, I know I sound defensive, but, but I wasn't. I wasn't having the wool pulled over my eyes. This was genuine, authentic remorse and shame. He was so incredibly ashamed over what he had done. He made a statement on that call where he said that he knew that when, when he died and um, he knew that his headstone would only say one thing. And that was that he was a rapist. 
And I don't know why that struck me so much, but it really did. And it was a heartbreaking statement to me because I know when I was on the call, I was thinking, this is somebody's, um, this is somebody's son. And, you know, I'm a mom. I, I have a son who's 21 now, almost 22. So it's a couple of years ago. And I remember thinking on that call, David Roberts is somebody's son. And no matter what your kids do, even something heinous like that, you don't stop loving them. And I knew that his mom had stuck by him all these years. Nobody else really did apparently, but his mom did. And she would visit him in prison and drive hours and hours and hours to go and see him. And she's elderly um, and, um, and sick. And so I remember thinking to myself, when is enough enough? Like how long should he serve now? These are the questions that popped up on that call. How long is long enough? I now know a hundred years is not what I'm looking for. If I was hearing from a person who took absolutely no responsibility for what they did, they weren't accountable for what they did, no remorse. I would be like rotten hell. I mean, go ahead and stay there till the day you die. I don't care. But that's not who we were dealing with. And it became very apparent to me that he is a human being. It's so much easier to say that he's a monster because of what he did. What he did was monstrous. His behavior was monstrous. It was incredibly impactful on, on me and my life, but it didn't ruin my life because there's no way I refuse to let that happen. So he, he served and I'm thinking to myself, well, this, this, the scales seem out of whack here to me. Now I, I feel like I'm the one who's the punisher. It felt, it didn't feel right anymore. Like enough is enough. I wanted him to pay for his crime. I wanted him to serve time. I wanted him to suffer. I wanted pain and suffering for him. And on that call, I learned about his pain and suffering and it was great. And it was vast. Um, I got everything that I wanted. I got everything I asked for. I wanted him to pay. And my God, he has paid. He lost everything. He lost everything. He lost his marriage. Um, he lost his child. He had a five month old baby when this happened. Um, he lost, you know, parental rights. Um, he lost 30 years of his life and all of his relationships. Um, did he have that coming? Of course he did. Of course he did. But that day I realized he has done his time. When is it enough? There's no purpose anymore for him to be in prison. I don't believe he's a danger to society. I don't believe he would ever um, do this again. The one thing he couldn't answer was why he did it. When he was asked that question, he would say, you know, he could tell you what he did in great detail. He could tell you the circumstances that led up to it that night and the fight with his wife and his overreaction to that. Um, his panic, then his turning back to drinking and doing something just incredibly impulsive, but he couldn't answer why he did it. So that was my one thing I said at the end of the call, I got an opportunity to talk and I shocked everyone, including myself, because I said, I want you to let him out of prison. And the commissioner was absolutely shocked. He was just blown away. 
And um, I said, I, I can't believe I feel this way, but I do. I, I believe him. I know he's remorseful. It was a terrible thing that he did. Um, I'll never forget it. I don't know if I can forgive it, but I definitely know that I don't feel like that's where he should be. I think he should be home and have whatever little time there is with his mom. He should be able to get out and be with his mother, but he can't get out until he can answer that question. He has to be able to explain why he did what he did. And he doesn't understand why he did it. And the only way he's going to understand that is to go through sex offender treatment. Sex offender treatment is not a joke. Um, you can research this. It actually is really, really good for a certain population of perpetrator, not for all of them, but for those that recognize and acknowledge that what they did was wrong and they take, um, responsibility for what they did that population can be helped through sex offender training there's a lot of people in prison that will that will try to fake it till they make it and it's unfortunate because they do get short sentences and they get out they're going to repeat he was in there for a very very long time but he just never had this treatment so after that call they moved him. They did finally a couple months later, move him to another facility and he was able to go through treatment. So there were four meetings that I attended. That was the first one. There were two more, um, just kind of touch points along the way, because there's always one each like six to nine months. And then eventually there was the, um, the last one, um, in 2000 and 2020, um, and I, I kind of knew because I was talking to the commissioners and stuff behind the scenes, I knew that, that they were going to recommend with my blessing that he be released. And they told me that this was knocking off probably five to seven years of time that they thought he would have still had to serve if I had not intervened. So on that last call, um, he talked about the sex offender treatment again, very apparent how incredibly impactful it was on him. And I would say to you that, um, honestly, it would be a, a really good service in the community that he's in now, if he would be involved with that ongoing as maybe um, like in a, a consultant role or uh, maybe a group leader role, uh, because he is such a powerful speaker and, and so incredibly articulate about a horrible thing. He can talk about it. It's not easy for him, but he can, and he can spot a bullshitter from a mile away. That's one of the things he talked about was that you could tell immediately on day one, which offenders in the group were just there to try to placate the system so that they could get out and which men were there to really do the work and, um, and discover and excavate and, and face their demons and that the trainers in the group could also spot those people and they would remove them that weren't there to do the work. And I thought that was good because, um, because I too truly believe that he, he is, ah, you're going to think I'm crazy, but I really believe that David Roberts is a good person. I think he's a good person and he did a really bad thing. And I really believe that a lot of people are capable of horrible behavior. I don't think I have to convince anybody of that. I'm not saying that a lot of people are capable of kidnap and rape, 
but I think that there are people that do horrendously bad things. And then what happens after that really determines their trajectory in their life. So I will say it a million times, this is my experience. I don't project this on any other person who has been assaulted or had a crime committed against them. You know, their story and their experience is theirs. This was mine. This was a journey that I never saw coming. I never expected that I would be able to forgive him and never made it a goal. So this, these meetings just brought me into a fold and got me informed in a way that I didn't expect. So listening to him talk about the treatment after that, I, I asked him why he, why he raped me, why he did what he did. And his answer was really simple. And I had written this down on paper, um, the first meeting that we had. So that was like four meetings ago. I wrote on a notebook um, because he could. That's what I wrote because he could. And on that call, when I asked him why he did it, that final meeting, he said, because I could. And it's really that simple. It is the entitlement, the belief that um, so many men have that when they want something, they just take it. So don't think I'm bashing on you guys. There are so many good men in my life and in the world. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about rape culture. Um, I'm talking about entitlement culture. I want something, and this carries over into lots of other things, but now we're talking about sexual assault. I wanted something, so I took it. And that's exactly what he um, verbalized that day. I didn't give a thought to um, that I shouldn't do this. In my head, I was angry. I was spinning. I was drunk. Um, I was um, just thinking about what I wanted in the moment. I tried to get the girl. She got away. Um, I went to a convenience store and got myself a soda. I should have cleared my head. I should have been thinking clearly. I should have just gone home, but I didn't because I didn't want to. I, I had set my mind on this and I was going to do it. And there you were, you didn't do anything wrong. This has nothing to do with you. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I took you and I did with you what I wanted to do with you. And because I could, and it's as simple as that. It's just entitlement. There's no thought process. And this is how it is with all rapists. There's no thought process about that person's well-being, what that's going to do to them. There's zero concern for that. There's only what I want, what the rapist wants, and they're going to take it. They're, they're, they're going to do it. You're not going to change somebody's mind. <laughs> they're going to do it because they want it and they don't have a fear of consequences. And there's not a fear of consequences because rape is not taken seriously. It's not. Again, my case is unique, I feel, because I know that a lot of times women who are raped are not believed. They won't even go report it because they know that they're not going to be believed. Um, they're going to be re-victimized. So there's so many women that just, and not just women, by the way, there's marginalized communities too. I mean, men are raped, um, transgenders are raped. And, and they're most of the time, they're definitely not going to go tell anyone because they're going to have a whole nother 
um, you know, battle ahead of them and just trying to get support. So, you know, for me, I know how lucky I was that the police were on my side and believed me and assisted me, cared for me, nurtured me, same with the court system. Um, I had all of that on my side, but as a society, that's not what it's like. Rape is made light of all the time. I, I, I said to you in a text or in the message, you know, that I wanted to talk about rape jokes. Um, you're, you know, you're a comedian. Um, um, rape jokes aren't funny ever. They're never funny. There's just, um, there's nothing funny about rape. And I know that sometimes when things are really uncomfortable, we make light of them. I mean, I've used, I, humor has saved my life. I have a dark sense of humor. I love humor. I love your posts. Um, but there's nothing funny about a rape joke. And it's, it's, it's like part of the, the, the shit soup that's out there that contributes to this being okay. Does a rape joke um, make, does, does, do rape jokes make rapists? Of course not. It, it's like um, little, little drops of stuff that, that come together to make a society so desensitized to how serious this is. I mean, we haven't even talked about the impact, you know, that it has on someone's life. I mean, my life wasn't ruined, but it was highly impacted. Um, and it always will be. There are certain things that, that trigger me, that send me back throttling 30 years. But I just want people to really, you know, just, just take a minute, you know, like really think about what you say, what you do. How, how it's part of the bigger picture. I remember a couple of years ago when people were talking about um, Pepe Le Pew getting canceled, right? And, and, and of course, it's one more thing that people can argue about and, and be divisive about. Um, I remember looking at that thinking, that's really interesting to me. I've always fucking hated Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> I remember as a young child thinking, that's gross. Look at, she just wants to get away, you know? And when you watch the little clips and um, if you, if you really watch them, you think, yeah, that's actually, that's pretty uncomfortable. That's again, it's like this little thing, right? It seems like it's a little thing. And it is a little thing until you stack it up with everything else. I remember that in one of the calls that I was on with the state of Wisconsin and, and David Roberts, and he was talking about the influence of, um, you know, mass super toxic masculinity and um, again, entitlement. And he talked about how, how his dad treated his mom, um, how his dad treated his sisters Um and again, just, you know, when he wanted something, his dad just took it, you know, I mean, literally just took what he wanted and how he saw that with other men, like in jobs, um, sexually harassing women at the workplace. He talked a little bit about that. He talked about the movie. He, he, he asked me if I had seen the Porky's movies because we're, we were basically the same age. And I said, yes, I've seen them. And he said, 
well, there's one and I don't remember which one it is, but there's a guy asking a girl out on a date and she doesn't want to go. And she says no over and over and over again. And he just badges her until she agrees to go out with him. And he said, that's the culture that we've grown up in. And again, it's a little snippet, but it's true coercion. And so I, I think about all these like little minor things that uh, when they stand alone, they don't seem like a big deal. But when you stack them all together, it's kind of indoctrination from a very young age. That's why I talk about the Pepe Le Pew thing, because those are little kids typically watching those cartoons. And so from a young, young, young age, you have girls and boys seeing that. And I guess it, it, it starts to shape the way that they think you can force yourself on someone. You can take what you want. Um, so, and, you know, I could go on about Disney movies and the how the women are portrayed in Disney movies, helpless, have to be saved, you know, all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of cultural stuff. Then you've got music and movies and I don't live in a box. I mean, I love to see movies. I like all kinds of music. I realize there's all kinds of messages out there. Um, there are certain things we can control and certain things that we can't. And I don't want to um, regulate or mandate um, integrity. You know, I don't want to do that. Uh, but I think that there are things that we can pay attention to and things that we, we can kind of put a stop to. And so when I see comedians joking about roofies and joking about rape, I wonder if they if they've ever known anybody. It's one of the things that crosses my mind is have they ever really known anyone who's been raped and do they know the impact? And if they really did, would they maybe do some self-reflection and think, ask myself, what's funny about that joke? Do you know where I'm coming from? I, I do. I have two thoughts. I'll tell you first, very quick. I don't know what this says about me, but going all the way back to the question, you know, why did you do this? The thought that popped into my head was because he could, like, I got to the answer before you even revealed it. And yeah. so when you did, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's the answer. Yeah. But the other thought is, is a story. Um, this goes back many, many years in my career. Um, I'm, I'm an opening act at this point. Uh, and um, I, I'm not going to go into details because I could, I mean, I, I remember where I was in the club. I remember the club. I remember where this, the, the, the headlining, the comic that's above me is on stage. And on Friday, he tells a rape joke and I'm in the back of the room going, Ooh, you know, like Ooh. it, it, it just like you said, they're not fine. I'm not here to police anybody, but it, it, they, they rubbed me the wrong way for the most part. Mm. Um, but his really rubbed me the wrong way. I just, I did not like it. And so Saturday comes around and there's a bachelorette party in the audience. And I do my set. It goes well. I get off stage. He gets on stage. And at some point he starts his rape joke. And I notice all the girls from the bachelorette party getting up and rushing to the bride, the one that's decked out with penises everywhere. You know who oh. she is. <laughs> and I sort of make my way around so that I can see her and tears are running down her face. And they're they're comforting her, and she and I, I don't remember if the comedian is oblivious, but he keeps going. The long and the short of it is, I she had she she had been raped, and he set her off, and she was reliving it and just sobbing. And I don't remember my actions. I just remember I 
moving in and talking to one of the bachelors, like, is there anything I can do? And she was a sweetheart. She's like, no, you were great. She told me what happened. This asshole on stage is telling this joke that, as I said, I didn't find funny. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they got her out of there. And yeah, I mean, that, that was a defining moment in my career, if you will, where I had never written a rape joke, but mm-hmm. witnessing that I'm like, I don't think I ever will. Not that it's it, not that I was trying to brew one up. Right. But I just, I remember so vividly this, this woman going to a comedy club to laugh, to celebrate yep. her, her uh, impending doom. Sorry, her marriage. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And instead of remembering the worst night of her life and just the, the, uh, the, well, the thing I can't get over, as I said, the tears running down her face. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, there are movie tears where you're like a single tear. And then there's real tears where, where your nose clogs up and you're, you're snarfing because you can't <laughs> yeah, breathe yeah, yeah. and it's not pretty. And it's just, right. I, I remember having the thought, I never want to do anything like that to someone while I am on stage. Mm-hmm. And I know I have dark humor and I know I, well, I take that back. I don't think I push boundaries. I talk about things that are interesting to me. Some people call mm-hmm. them dark. Some people call them sarcastic. But I just remember having the thought, I never want to do so. People are here to laugh. I mm-hmm. never want to cause anyone pain while I'm on stage. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way of doing that. And Oh, I do too. I do too. I think that um, it's interesting because you asked the question about su- survivor and victim. That's why I say it kind of swings, right? It, it's situational. I mean, overall, I consider myself a, a survivor. But but I feel re-victimized at times. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a popular word these days. You know, triggered for people yeah. to get triggered. Well, victim uh, is a but, popular word as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but we do get. You know, we of course anybody who's been through an assault does get get triggered. You know, for me, um, it, it it has to do with feelings of of worthlessness and shame, um, and. Uh, I think for it, it just dug so much when, when I was assaulted, when that happened to me, you know, it was all about getting through it, surviving, and then getting on the other side of it. And then when that happened, when I got through it, um, almost immediately, this is why I talk about how, I mean, I was super tired. I wanted to go to sleep, but it was more than that. I wanted to escape reality you know, after I got my shower and, 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 and then I had to tell my family what happened. It made phone calls that were just horrifying to make. And then I just wanted to, um, unplug. I won't say that I really wanted to die. That came later. A lot of suicidal thoughts came later, but in the immediate aftermath of the assault, um, I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to be dead, but I didn't want to be alive either. It was like, what can I do to not have to think or feel anything right now because the thoughts were so awful. And one of the main things I kept thinking of is I am worthless. I mean, that somebody would do this to me obviously means that I have no worth, that that someone could just pick me up off the street and do what they did to me and just discard, just discard me that this... I made it all about me, not about him. It was in my head. I am so not, I have no worth that I could just be treated like literal object and piece of garbage and, you know, used like that, just used. 
and, um, and then discarded. And that's what stuck with me. I could not get that out of my head for years. I carried that baggage around with me. Um, because before that night I was incredibly confident. <laughs> I was on top of the world. You know, I was in college and I had an awesome boyfriend and, you know, we were normal 21 and 23 year old people, you know, we were passionate and we were active and I had a great job and, um, you know, just like you're on top of the world at that age. I had everything ahead of me and our relationship. Um, we were only a little over a year into our relationship and things were so great. And then this horrifying thing happened. And I'll tell you what, my life changed immediately. It was like, and that's like when I talk about people joking around about, about rape or making light of rape or, or just not even paying enough attention to how serious of a problem it is. Um, I think that's, I guess what, what brings that back up and makes me feel that way sometimes is why isn't anybody taking this seriously? You know, we're just treated like garbage and it's a terrible thing. It's it, I don't feel that way all the time, but that has stuck with me for, for many, many years that that's how, what it feels like. Like you just have, you can be treated that way because you're not worth anything that's a societal problem that we don't value women enough to really make this topic, you know, a major topic, something that really, really has to be dealt with. Meaning like, what, what am I looking for? I'm, I'm looking for um, the court system to give every rapist a 65 year sentence or a hundred year sentence, you know, none of this small stuff they should all get that sentence, but they should have, they should have opportunities while they're incarcerated to do the work that needs to get done. Those that aren't willing to do the work or can't do the work because they are actual monsters, they can stay in prison forever. Shoot, give them a, put them to sleep. I don't care. They, we shouldn't have to share air with them at all. Um, and there's a fair number stance. of those predators. What's that? I said, that's my stance. Yeah. I, I just, I have no time for anybody who can't be accountable for what they've done and aren't willing to um, delve in and figure out why their behavior is what it is. You know, if, if, if David Roberts gave me in, any indication that he was still capable of the behavior that he was, I would, I would have said, just leave him in there. In fact, I would have been going to every hearing um, participating as loudly as I could to, to, to advocate for him to stay in prison. Um, but I, I believe that there are people that are capable of changing and that are capable of, um, being identified and, and defined by more than just one, that one thing. And that's what I believe in this case. I, I, I can't say that about any other case. I wouldn't know the details, you know, um, but that's how I feel about this. And I just, I don't know. I feel like it's a, such a serious topic. Um, but it, it doesn't get a lot of, it doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, you see it, you see a story when it happens and then, you know, that it's, it's gone and there's really no follow through on society to, to, to try to encourage, um, more look at, I feel like with, with a problem, uh, someone asked me one time why I was, or how I was willing to even talk with him, because even though they told me I wasn't allowed to talk to him, I did talk to him. They allowed it. We, we went back and forth and we actually conversed with each other on two of the phone calls. 
And um, I guess for me, I think about it, like if you are studying drugs and alcohol, like you could take almost any subject, but let's say you're studying drugs and alcohol and you want to know why someone turns to drugs and alcohol, you're going to go talk to people who do that. <laughs> you're going to talk to people who don't, who go through regular stressors and they don't turn to that. So you're going to find out how they're able to cope in other ways but you're certainly going to go talk to the people who struggle with drugs and alcohol and see why, what the motivators are. And, and you're going to study both sides. So I look at it the same way with sexual assault. It's not going to do you any good to only talk to the good guys, right? It's not going to do you any good to talk to, to guys who've never done it. You, you can talk to them and, and, and they can explain to you why they respect women and why they would never do something like that. And you can find out about their backgrounds and what's contributed to how they behave and how they think. But if you really want to stop sexual assault, you better go talk to the rapists and find out why they're doing it. <laughs> like you, you have to find that out. And if you find some that are actually willing to really sit down and get into the nitty gritty and tell you what contributed to their thought process and their behavior, you, that's who you need to pay attention to. Cause that's the only way we can turn around and raise our sons, um, in a different way. You know, you've got a little boy. I love all your Truman posts, you know, I mean, your, your, your behavior, he's kind of obviously near, um, He's going to hear what you have to say um, and, and you're going to have a big impact on him. It's the same way in our household. You know, our son is 21, almost 22. From a very young age, we were very open with him about body parts, right? We called them by their actual names. It was sillier later, you know, when he got into, you know, older than, the, than some of the other stuff came into play, but bodily functions, body parts, everything was very open. He knew about menstruation. He knew where babies came from, from a very early age. He knew. Um, I'm still lost on those last two where, what is menstruation <laughs> and where do babies come from? Oh yeah. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, if but, I could, you know, uh, he's, well-educated. If I could mm -hmm. recommend anybody watching this point or listening, uh, there's a book by John Krakauer called Missoula, which um, you're, you're nodding. Have you read it? Are you familiar? I haven't. I haven't. Uh -huh. um, it, it, phenomenal, depressing. This is the subject matter. And he, oh. he goes into detail. And um, yeah, that, that, I'll leave it there because just okay. John Krakauer, Missoula, because I was going to say something, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, well, self-promote self-promotional and i didn't want to do that oh. <laughs> his book inspired well, I'll me pick that up. while i was working well, on something while i was working on something his book inspired me that's that's what i'll leave it as but okay so um i guess parting thoughts the whole point of me bringing this up in a way is as i said barrett and i talk about irredeemability by the way barrett shut up you've talked so much this podcast i'm sorry barrett um that's <laughs> fine the idea that no one is irredeemable and we look at these Facebook posts or these people that vote a certain way. And I, I have friends on the left that say, fuck them. They're voting to take away my rights. And I'm like, yeah, I can understand your anger. I see it. I hate it. You don't change anybody by dismissing them and saying, fuck them. Right. Like I still talk to my stupid high school friends, not believing I will change them. And I don't think they talk to me thinking they'll change me. Like maybe they sit there and go, Ooh, maybe Nathan will have a traumatic brain injury and then he'll be dumb like me too. I don't know. <laughs> um, but lack of dialogue does nothing. Dialogue yeah. helps. Lack of dialogue does nothing. And 
Yeah, as as you've proven, almost no one is irredeemable. There is irredeemable out there, but man, for you to find it in your life and experience, I, I got nothing. I don't know that I could be there. I don't know that I could project uh, myself into that situation and say, oh, I could see myself being forgiving. I, I all praise upon you and yeah. your, your, your journey, your, 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 who you are as a person for, for what you took away from your experience. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I don't say this lightly, but much better person than I think I could ever be. So it can surprise yourself, you know, I mean, this, like I said, this was never a goal of mine and I thank you for the compliments, but you know, I, I definitely, you know, my, again, my goal is not praise. It's more about education. You know, I, mm. I feel like, um, for me having not been looking for it when I, when I did finally forgive him, which I did, um, I did it because I, I truly was, I truly felt that way. Right. I didn't, a lot of people say, Oh, you know, when you forgive someone, you'll feel so much better. It's, 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 it'll just, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, well, I can't do it if I don't really mean it. You know, I'm, I, I, it's as much for him as it is for me. When I forgave him, I wanted him to take it to heart and know that, um, I believe in him and I want him to have a good life. I want him to have a life that's productive I want him to have a life that has love. Um, I feel that he deserves that. He's He has earned that. Um, I feel that he definitely paid his debt and he served his time and, and he paid in spades when it came to pain and suffering and then it just became cruel. So I want that for him. I do forgive him for what he did. I will never forget. Um, I will never say you have a past. It's okay that you did that. It's not okay. And I made that abundantly clear to him. Um, but I, but I have forgiven and, but I don't ever want anybody else to think that I'm saying this or telling the story because that's what they should do. I hate it when people should all over each other. You, you do whatever feels right for, for you. You know, I know people who've been in my situation that they don't, they have want nothing to do with the perpetrator. They want no contact. And I completely respect that. You know, it's like you move on with your life and you go on. Um, for me, my, my, my next thing is that I'm going to sit down with the, with him. Um, it'll be in a controlled environment. Um, but, uh, but I'm going to do that. I want to sit down. I've been writing and I just kind of want to, um, I feel like it's like the next and hopefully last step for me in my process. So but people, people deserve, there are, there are people that deserve redemption. That's my belief. Barrett thoughts. It, it seems like one of the, the things, some of the things that you said really reflect the same idea, which is as humans, we somehow, we do this thing where we dehumanize the other, right? Like yes. when it comes to women in rape culture, well, women aren't humans, they're women. So you take what you want and do what you want and make them do what is right for you because they are not humans. They're here to be, they're extras in your movie that are here to serve your function, kind mm -hmm. of, right? And then when, and then, but in a, in a way, like for the years in between, 91 and 2018 there's this version of him in your head that was mm -hmm. that might have been correct when it started 
Right. right? But right. then over the, the years, it was no longer correct, but it hadn't, like your, your opinion, your knowledge of him hadn't evolved with all the other things that evolved in your life. You know what I mean? Not that you had any reason to know that because you didn't know, but when you had a conversation with him and you used these words, you saw him as a human being all of a sudden, not right. just as this boogeyman or this yes. monster, he was actually a human being. And it's like, right, it seems to always come down to that. Not always, but often it comes down to, do we see women as human? Right? Mm -hmm. Are women actually part of the human race? Right? Right. Are, are people who you said, here's a guy who did a really bad thing. Now, maybe he was a really bad guy when he was 23. But by all accounts, he was a troubled guy more than a bad guy. Mm -hmm. But he did a really bad thing. And while he, and he definitely needs to be held accountable for that, there is a point. Does he, is he no longer a human? because mm -hmm. he did something inhumane, right? Like in right. that weird thing, right? Like, and I wonder if without any of the treatment and things like that, if you talked to him when he was 26 and you could have determined how the rest of his life would have gone, he might not have even been at that place yet. He might've been mm -hmm. at a place where like, it was my wife's fault. She made me mad and then I went out and got drunk mm -hmm. and then this happened and it's all her fault because she started this fight. I don't know what he would have said, but you know what I mean? Something like right. that. It's like, right, like time has a way of like calcifying, eroding and softening in yeah. different areas of our lives. Like some areas calcify and we just mm -hmm. double down. There is a Santa Claus and the earth is flat. You know, <laughs> and then other things kind of erode, like these other things like, ah, I used to kind of believe this. I don't know. Like you said about the anger, you don't necessarily know when it disappeared. Mm -hmm. It just kind of little by little eroded over time. It just kind of other things replaced it, right? Your, right. your husband, your child, your life, your friends, your other things, just there was no room for all this other positive stuff in your life if all this other stuff was taking up that bandwidth. So it just got edged out over 30 years, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's another thing. And then other things just soften like, well, yeah, I used to believe that now I'm not sure what I believe. Right. Yeah. And it's like, we, we don't always get to pick and choose which things harden, which things disappear and which things soften. But in this case, he had to make a conscious choice largely through therapy, right? He was forced to make a choice, but it was still a choice. Like he had to make the choice to say, I want to be different, mm -hmm. right? And that's, that is something that humans can do. And so I guess the question is like, it well, is a- let me, I apologize, but mm -hmm. did he want, I, I'm, this is just the isolated case here, but did he want to be different or did he realize that that one act was not who he was as mm. he wasn't a serial offender i mean because he could have that could have set him down the path who knows maybe that would have oh i like that you I know mean, and maybe by 26 he would have had 10 victims i mean who who knows We're just right well it's really hard to say you know it's really yeah. hard to say i i think a lot about um had there you know had i gotten involved earlier you know it would have been a different experience you know i know that 
my maturity and his maturity because so much time has passed um, has a lot to do with it. Um, you know, I don't know what it was like for him in the first few years that he was in in jail and in prison. I don't know what his thought process back then. And he probably very well could have been combative, might have been blaming other people. Um, I don't know because I wasn't part of it. And I don't know if those questions were asked of him in, in hearings that I didn't um, attend. I only know that um, that back when it happened, um, you know, and I just didn't want to see it. <laughs> I didn't back then I didn't want to see it. And I certainly didn't want to hear any defense of him that any character witnesses that did come forward for him, people were literally shocked that he was capable of doing what he did, um, especially his employers. He was a young man, um, but he was, um, you know, being promoted at work and, um, you know, just everybody that kind of knew him, no one could believe that he had gone and done something like this. But I didn't want to hear that back then. You know, I didn't want to hear it. I'm just like, he's a monster. Um well, you shouldn't have been I mean, forced to, to hear it. There, yeah. You shouldn't force someone in a moment to, you shouldn't force anything upon them. Like, like oh, yeah, he did this bad thing, but he's not a bad guy. Well, right. Exactly. I, was, I wasn't in the frame of mind to hear it, but yeah. those kind of things you come up in court. You know, that's what happens in court. Um, but yeah, anyhow, my, you know, the process has been, in, it, it's, it's just been an interesting process. And then I think that Baird has definitely hit on, a, it, it, it is definitely the way you described it is that we we do dehumanize people um, when awful things are happening, right? It, it's just, we just can't believe that a, a, a real sane human person is capable of some of the behavior of like serial killers and stuff. It's just shocking, um, you know, pedophiles. It's just like, how can you be so disconnected that you can do the thing that the things that they're capable of doing. And that's what I struggled with was how could he do that to me? Like what kind of person could do that? And I just couldn't believe that a person, a human being would do it. So it was just easier to call him a monster and his behavior was monstrous. And, um, but a lot of time has gone by and I believe that he is a completely different person. Um, I, I, I truly believe that I believe in him and, uh, um, I hope, I hope I'm never proven wrong. That would be a very difficult thing for me to handle. So, well, final question, and this is, as we wrap things up, usually where we talk about, uh, you know, Barrett's music, my books, my comedy, do you have anything like, and, and this is off the top of my head because we didn't discuss it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Are you just, just barfing out of me educational or motivational speaking? Because I fucking think you're there. Like, I think <laughs> you could stand in front of a group and be extremely motivational, extremely educational, therapeutic. Is that anything you've looked into or thought about? Because that's what I would be promoting right now is, is Sherry does <laughs> um, this. And... No. So no, I don't do anything like that. I, um, I did one other podcast for uh, um, victim services in Orlando um, that I had been tipped off about them and they called me. And so I did, I did a thing about forgiveness with them. Um, Why? Well, I, I, you know, I, I don't this do is the anything tip of else. The iceberg then, because yeah. I think uh, depending on how comfortable you seem very comfortable telling it. Uh, I, I, I think this could be something you would be excellent at. And as I, I said, therapeutic that. for others and educational inform any, any, Yeah. Well, I write it. I'm started writing. That's why I started going back actually to Wisconsin a couple of years ago. I 
um, started taking some breaks and so that I could really unplug. I have an incredibly demanding job. I own a travel agency and right now I'm working like 60, 70 hours a week, which is oh. totally insane. My so I don't have a whole lot of time. Um, Disney but March. I, Why I didn't started, we go through you? <laughs> I, I carved out, you know, days where that was it. I unplugged, I went up there and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. I also read a book while I was there that I had on my nightstand for about five years <laughs> and I <laughs> just couldn't find the strength to do it. And I finally did it in Wisconsin. There's a book called book? Um, South no, of Forgiveness. My, my book called, wasn't out five years ago. No. <laughs> um, there's a book called South of Forgiveness. And I, I recommend that. I can't remember the name of the woman who wrote it, but it is um, a woman wrote a book co-wrote a book with her rapist believe it or not wow um all right yes. did not see that coming different circumstances but an interesting book so i read that and that was really motivating for me so i've been writing for a while trying to put something together we'll see if that comes together but otherwise you know one of my my biggest goals is uh if i can get my business under control which is a little hard to do right now um there is a victim um of rape uh, what do I want to say? It's like sexual assault um, center here in my town. And I would just like to have time to be able to volunteer there. Um, I've never done anything like that. And when I was in college, I was in a speakers group. Um, but that was a long time ago. You know, that was in the 90s. And I haven't done anything with this like part of my life in a really long time until I did that podcast. And this one, and it is motivating and it's confidence building i would say that <laughs> so thank well, you and yeah and i i and you can't it's like forgiveness you can't do anything until you're ready it has to be organic and if you are finding your voice now and uh, then this is when it was meant to happen so mm -hmm. thank you for coming on here and sharing yeah. your story and life and thanks everything. for having me yeah. i appreciate it <laughs> well yeah, this is wow. awkward but we'll do it Barrett uh, can be found at antargoodwin.com. Do you want us to share a Twitter handle or anything for you? Or are you, uh, please go ahead with anything. If, if people want to find you, reach out to you. Oh, um, um, I guess they can look for me on Facebook. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Yeah. Uh, antargoodwin.com. He's with, he's the musical director for the Katie Henry band. I got, I stole the picture you posted the other day. So I'm going to throw the graphic up right now for anybody watching, which shows the upcoming dates. You have a whole slew of them. So we're not even going to try and promote one of them. Um, earlier when I caught myself, uh, John Krakauer's Missoula did inspire me for one of the moments in my book, We Are 100, the thriller I wrote where bad people do bad things to worse people and one of the people that gets taken out did something horrible to a woman i believe uh, so well actually it was the process either way i was i was inspired by that so uh, my book we are 100 is available on audio kindle paperback hardcover amazon audible google play whatever and i can be found at nathantimmel.com thanks for watching thanks for listening and uh oh by the way trigger warning the things you just heard could have been triggering had I said that up front, but <laughs> I didn't. Bye. <laughs>